0: Hopefully, I can do half as well tonight. Um, I may defer to Sue to teach this lesson. She's heard it before. <laughs> um, I started doing this after I went to one of the Christmas programs, and it was here at uh, Vail Bible. And I had some friends whose kids were, you know, in the program, and so we went. So it's put on by, uh, not Veil Bible, uh, the whatever the other place is, the Christian school up there, across from St. Francis or St. whoever. Yeah. It's hard to keep track. Oh. Yeah, Calvary. Calvary's involved and the school's involved. So those people put on this Christmas pageant. And it was the typical Christmas pageant. Oh, you're probably looking at something on the screen. And of course course you know no it's fine you know what that is yes thank you it's a big doll within it would be the mar bay so there's that's an actual real life big doll that still exists in arabia somewhere and there's another one um, following this that shows what a newer version looks like but they still use those things and the whole point is you have the sheep or a Presumably any sort of livestock, but especially the sheep are out in the field, and of course the shepherd can't always see them from his vantage point. So every sheepfold has some version of a migdal ider, which is the Hebrew for tower of the flock, and it allows the you know it allows one shepherd to go up on top of the building, however high it is. And that's kind of where he hangs because he can overview the entire grazing area of the flock, which you couldn't see from the ground level. And then within the Migdal, I dare, sheep towers in in Bethlehem are what's called a marbake. And that's where the actual sheep is born. They take him; It's a hollowed out limestone uh, bed, you might say, and they throw some straw and stuff in it. And when the sheep is ready to give birth, they put her in this marbake so that when she gives birth to the new lamb, um, they're not scratched or, you know, damaged in any way so that they would be acceptable for use uh, as sacrifice. Because all of the sheep used in the temple sacrifice came from uh, Bethlehem. It's called the city of sheep, actually, because they're hundreds of thousands of, it's like Colorado, more sheep than people. And there were specific uh, sheep ranches that were manned by priests. And they were, their task was to raise the sheep for the offering. So they'd keep drag male, female, blemished, unblemished, you know, whatever it was. And to keep the sheep from being scuffed up when they were born, uh, they were Born in this smooth limestone, far bank, so that's a Migdal idea. Okay, so the Christmas pageant at you know I happened to be at the one at Calvary and and the the local Bible uh, local Christian school up there. Whatever that does, that get to see me have a name. The, the Christian is it? Yeah. Okay, okay. So Vale Christian and Calvary Chapel, the school and the church, put on the Christmas pageant. And I look around the room and I can see um, a thousand years of experience here in music recitals and Christmas pageants and, you know, all that sort of thing. And their Christmas pageant was like many that we've seen and sat through for some time. And they had uh, one, one of the differences was on the screen, because it was at Calvary's, uh, I guess, where they meet, Calvary has two big, you know, jumbotrons, one on each side. So as we were going through the program, they had interviewed previously each one of the children and asked them a couple of questions about Christmas. And, you know, what does it mean to you? You know, typical softball questions. And then they would have the kids at appropriate times on the jumbotrons answering the questions. And the, the questions were always about, you know, what does Christmas mean to you and all that stuff. And the answers were all, all the same. It's as though they had been coached. This is the day that Jesus was born. And then they would elaborate on that. And of course, most Christians know, I assume, I'm guessing, certainly everybody in this room knows that Yeshua was not born on December 25th. And so they're asking, and it's, it's just, it's, it was dawning on me for the first time, I guess, as I was watching this, that if the churches and the Christian schools are teaching the children wrong stuff, this isn't the only wrong stuff they're teaching them. And so, you know me, I'm not, you know, sometimes I, go over the line a little bit, maybe. (laughs) So after the event, all the parents were mingling and I asked several of them. uh, Now, you know that Yeshua wasn't born today, right? Do Do your kids know that? Are they actually teaching them the truth at school? I mean, you know, this is the pageant and, you know, you do the Christmas card thing and stuff. And I got a lot of the eyes down looking at their feet thing. And I wasn't sure, A, if they even knew that, or B, why they let it go on that way. Santa Claus. Yeah, I guess. Santa Claus. I didn't know. So it, you know, the, the, the real Christmas story, and that's the thing I don't get. When you put together the real Christmas story, it is so much more compelling than the flannel graph Uh, pageants that we've all seen hundreds of them and put our kids in and listen to. So the question in my mind is, well, why don't they use the good stuff? Why don't they use the real story that's so compelling? So the, the, the Christmas, you know, the Christmas pageant thing, the Christmas cards, the, you know, the Christmas things that we all do, sort of uh, were invented by Pope uh, Julius in 336 AD. And you can think what you want to think. The idea was, or at least the stated idea was, that all of these pagan events happen at this time of year, you know, between the, the 21st and the 25th, is typically the solstice this year, it's the 21st. Often it's the 21st or 22nd, sometimes the 23rd. Uh, If you happen to be Roman and you worship, you know, their big God is Sol, the sun God. It is thought that his birthday is the 25th of December. That's when the world was created. There are all these things from all these different religions that happen within a few days of what we now call Christmas. And so the Julius uh, with Caesar's, the local Caesar decided that they would move the Feast of Tabernacles to the 25th of December in hopes of incorporating all the pagans into a Christian event. And by that way, be able to share with them Yeshua or whatever they were. Trying to teach, but it was it's 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 written down, and it's uh, it's without dispute that they know what they were doing was wrong, and they claim they had the authority to do it. Get this, because they did it, that gives them the authority to do it. And the theory is, if if God had wanted them not to do it, then He would have put a stop to it but they did it and God allowed them to do it. So that's their authority. So there's no question that when we celebrate Jesus or Yeshua on the 25th of December, it's completely 100% bogus. It is a pagan celebration from the get-go. It took almost 300 more years, it was Pope Gregory, and I think 606 AD, that actually codified it, he wrote it down, it became a part of the Roman Catholic um, canon, canon, thank you, um, that that's why we do it. And they're all very upfront about it. And, you know, looking back on it, it seems pretty gutsy, really, to do that. But you look back on it and now the whole world associates these pagan events with the Messiah of the Bible, to the extent that all of the pagans today continue to scream about, oh, this religious celebration, we've got to take it out of the schools and all that stuff. Well, it's not a religious, it's never been a religious celebration. My in-laws are Roman Catholic and they brought me one year, the little, uh, when you've seen them, I'm sure they're white magnets for the back of your car, and it's sort of the outline of a little shed roof and a little manger and a couple of people and maybe I can't remember if the three wise guys are there and the stars on top, you know, and all that stuff. And at the bottom it says "Keep Christ in Christmas," and I struggle with that because there's there's no correlation. Christ was never in Christmas. Christmas is never about the Messiah. It was always about Um, these pagan rituals. And Christmas in the United States, because of course the United States were founded by Christians and the laws were written by and for Christians and we're told to elect only Christians and all that. Well, Christmas was illegal to celebrate in the United States from the 1600s on. And it wasn't until 1867 that Massachusetts always, it's always Massachusetts. It was was pagan liberals then, it's pagan liberals now. But in 1867, Massachusetts said it's now legal to celebrate this pagan holiday in Massachusetts. And then one state after another state after another. Well, it wasn't until 1907 when Mississippi finally caved that it was finally legal to celebrate Christmas in the United States, in every state. So think about it, 1907. My grandfather was born in 1887. So he was 20 before it became legal to celebrate Christian or a Christmas, legal to celebrate Christmas because it was a pagan holiday and this was a Christian country. My mother, his daughter, was the first generation of our family that grew up in a country that it was legal to celebrate Christmas. So I am the second generation in this country that has lived in a place that's legal to celebrate Christmas. Now, that doesn't mean we should, but if you think about that, in that short amount of time, it has gone from being legal, but most people would never do it. Everybody does it and nobody knows. And how did that happen in the, in the space of my mom to me? It's just, it's unbelievable. But. And so many people that don't even acknowledge Christ in their life, and, but yet they celebrate Right. The yeah, but why do the Christians celebrate it? They don't. They they don't know why. Because every church uh, that I've been to has Christmas trees up, you know. And, and it took me years to get Tommy to take the Christmas trees down. And he finally took them down one year and put up these actually very nice tin stars, you know, made in Mexico, but they're, you know, big tin stars, you're supposed to put a, a candle in or behind. So those were, de- okay, so he finally got it, we need to get rid of the Christmas trees. But you go to any church, you get Christmas trees, you get the Christmas story, you get the pageant, the kids come up and do a Christmas pageant in front of the church. And it's always what Pope Julius had made up. And he made it up by taking every single pagan thing from uh, from really from the day one, I mean, we can trace it back 5,000 years. So that's before the flood. You take all of those things from Mesopotamia, from Babylon, from the Scandinavian countries, from the European countries, and you throw them in a big blender and you mix them up and you pour it out over a marshmallow figure of Jesus. And that's what the popes were pushing as Christmas. So <clears throat> I ha- I have a a teaching somewhere where a guy goes through all of the things that we do during the holidays, and then he tells you where we got those things. And it's ins- I mean he's on for like an hour and a half. Everything you've ever thought has anything to do with Christian Christmas is from some pagan. But you know, the Yule logs, right? Everybody has a Yule log. Well, that's of course um, from Saturnalia, right? You take a Yule log and you throw it in the fire at Christmas and it's to symbolize the days getting longer and the new life ahead in spring and all that stuff. Uh, Some countries would cut down evergreens around this time of year and bring them into their house and nail them to the floor. And Jeremiah, um, the Lord told Jeremiah, well, here we go. Jeremiah chapter 10, and I'm sure you guys know this, verses 1 through 5, it says, Hear ye the word of the Lord, which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the heathen are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of a workman with an axe. They deck it with silver and gold, and they fasten it with nails and hammers that it move not. They are as upright as the palm tree, but they speak not. They must needs be born, because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them also to do good. So d- does that sound like anything? And for years after that, then people started putting lights on them, of course, long before Edison and Tesla, I guess. So houses were burning down and many people were dying because they would put candles in their evergreen that they'd nailed on the living room floor and and covered with tinsel. Uh, Wassel is a punch, I guess. They have it in Eagle. That is another Saturnalia thing. It's a pagan celebration. And it's to celebrate, remind us of, you know, the new life to come, the spring and and all of that stuff. In the Norse communities, they had a a god named Odin. And Odin was a jolly fat fellow with a green coat trimmed in white fur. And he had a flock of eight-legged reindeer that could fly through the skies and two ravens. So every night, the reindeer and the ravens would go all the way around the world and re, would report to Odin what was going on and who was being good and deserved a gift and who was not being good and didn't deserve a gift. And Odin later became the god of war, but that's a whole nother story. And, and I might mention sort of a sidelight, uh, the Norse um, customs, their god Balder, was in a fight with um, Hodr. For the hand of the lovely nana and hoder dipped his arrow in um mistletoe in a in a compound made of mistletoe and was able to slay balder with the arrow so mistletoe of course became associated with sexual license and kissing under the mistletoe the romans had all kinds of gods soul was the big one um Dias Natalis Solis Invicti, the birthday of the invincible sun god, was the biggest celebration in Rome. And there would be 150,000 people packed in the Colosseum on December 25th, and they would watch 30 chariot races. You know, even when a Caesar died, you only got 24 chariot races. This was was as big as it got. And they believed that the world was created on December 25th by Sol, the sun god. Drunken binges and food comas, and you know, Christmas parties basically is where we got that. Were common. Um, they did a thing where they would get naked and go around the country singing, and whoever would come outside would be the recipient of uh, lots of sex and other other things. So of course, that became you know, Christmas caroling they made uh, human shaped cookies out of a ginger dough and would hand them out during this time of the year. And, you know, and it goes on and on in, in Rome uh, the courts were closed from uh, whatever from like the 18th to the 25th of December. So with the courts closed, anything goes, you could do anything you wanted to do and nobody could be charged with a crime. Sounds like Mardi Gras exactly it is kind of Mardi Gras, um, but they miss one important part, so there was all kinds of things you know, and the Roman citizens were typically would round up foreigners and they would stuff rich food down the throats of the uh, uh, Jewish men, typically strip them naked and then make them run races until they threw up for their enjoyment and of course, all the foreign women mostly. Jewish women were all rounded up and, you know, raped for sport in the festivities of the season. And then on the 25th, one person who had been previously selected, this was a great honor, would be sacrificed. They would be killed and thrown off a, you know, deal. And it was believed that that by killing this one person, all of the bad deeds that happened during the week would be washed away. So that was... um, that was Christmas. So when we're, you know, and and again, we could go on for two hours with the Christmas balls. and I mean, there is nothing about a holiday celebration, nothing that doesn't come from Babylon or Mesopotamia or Norway or Sweden or, or, you know, and it's all pagan. So the Pope took all of this stuff, mixed it up in a big vat and poured it out. And the one, the one actual thing we talked about the other day was uh, St. Nicholas of Myrna. He was a a Catholic, nonetheless, a good guy. And he, again, another jolly fat man with a red coat trimmed in white. And he had been left a great deal of money when his parents passed. So he was, uh, his, his lot in life was to go around helping people. And he had this big red coat with two crosses, you know, cross on each lapel. And he was a, a, a Catholic, bishop or something. And, and he uh, ran into a, a single man, a, his wife had passed. And he had three daughters and his daughters were getting to be marrying age, but he was poor. He didn't have a dowry. And without a dowry, your child, your daughter would never be married. So that would sort of force them into prostitution. And it, you know, it was as St. Nicholas was wont to do, he needed to fix it. So they went to bed one night and what people of that generation did was they would take their stockings off that they had worn all day and they would hang them by the fireplace to dry. So he broke into the house and put gold pieces in the stockings so that the girls would have a dowry and possibly a future. And that was you know, obviously how we got the stockings and St. Nick and all that. And his legitimate birthday was December 6th so they moved it to the 25th and then you get this idea of presence and, and all that. So there are, you know, there are some things that are legit, but most of the stuff we get with the holidays are just, they're pagan. They're absolutely 100% pagan. But you asked the other day about uh, when Yeshua was born and could I prove it? So, yeah, I think I can. Luke chapter 1, verse 5, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abijah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So each priest had a course, his is Abijah, so there were 26 courses through the year. So each priest would work two weeks a year, plus it was all hands for the three weeks of the feasts. So the priests would work, each work five weeks a year. But then again, they didn't get paid. So they still had to, you know, to do their life, to grow their food, to, you know, to make a living. But every, in five weeks a year, they would serve at the temple. So that we know from historical documents that the, his first term of, you know, the course of Abijah was from the 12th to the 18th of the month of Chislu or in the year 5 BC, it would have been what we call on our calendar, uh, December 6th through the 12th. His next week was the 12th through the 18th of Sivan, or we would call it June 13th to the 19th. So it was apparently during the second week, the you know what we would call in June, um, that Zacharias had his famous encounter with the angel that left him dumb. So his term would have ended on the 19th of June, or what, you know, on our calendar would have been the 19th of June. And he would have needed to wait until the Sabbath was complete at midnight. And then of course, waited until the morning so he could set off for home. So that would have been the morning of June 20th of 5 BC. Zacharias would have set off for his 30 mile trek home. And being uh, an observant Jew, he wouldn't have had a horse. So 30 miles is a long way. Now they can ride donkeys and he may have had a donkey, but still donkeys don't go very fast. So this 30 mile trip home would have taken at least uh, two days because the scripture describes Zacharias at this time as being well stricken in years. And we don't know what that means exactly, but we do know he had a wife at home who was about to have a baby, about to become, about to be pregnant. Um, so he couldn't have been that old. So it, 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 if, he, if he had arrived home, say on the 22nd, you know, it would have been late on the day of the 22nd, presumably, then the absolute soonest you could have had uh, the baby John born would have been that evening, which on the Hebrew calendar would have been the 23rd because it's sunset. We move to the next day, and it 's interesting that Jews, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, all consider the twenty third of Sivan five b c to be um, the day of john 's conception, and why they would know or care to know is is something for another study, but um, it, 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 it's, it's been that way for two thousand years. They believed that the 23rd was the day John was conceived. So Luke one twenty-six 26 adds, um, it's in King James, it says, and in the sixth month, but it's really on the sixth month or at the sixth month. Um, and in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph to the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So it's, you know, it says six months. It's not around six months or about six months. It's six months. And a a Hebrew day is, or Hebrew month is 30 days. So it would have been 180 days that uh, Mary became pregnant with the Holy Spirit after John was conceived. So if John was conceived on the 23rd of Sivan, 180 days gives you, uh, brings you to the 1st of Tevet, which would be December 21st of 5 BC on, on, on our calendar, marking the conception of Yeshua on December 25th. So it's, it's just classic God that he sees all these people doing all these pagan things and changing his calendar all around. And he just says, well, here, take this. I'll give you something to celebrate. So the 25th is actually the day, I believe, of the conception of Yeshua. So if you finish this thought, John uh, would have been born mid-March during Passover of that year. And Yeshua six months later, which would have been near the end of September, which that year uh, would have been the Feast of Tabernacles in the year 4 BC. And if you want to narrow it down even further, I would say that he was born uh, that year on the 29th of September which was the last day the what they call the greatest day of the feast the feast of tabernacles so we'll uh, we'll get into that later but if you ask me what you might see on these christmas pageants is you see you see mary on a donkey typically great with child and this young handsome man joseph walking next to her and they're they're heading out of course, to the estate of Boaz, because that was uh, the relative of Joseph was Boaz. So if they had to get back to where they were from for the census, they would have had to have gone back to Bethlehem. And if they were going to Bethlehem, they naturally would have stopped or camped at the estate of Boaz, because that was his nearest relative. So, so far, the pageant's the same way. You see the, the camel or the donkey or whatever it is, the woman great with child, the man walking. Now, of course, the man walking is in his 80s, but they don't picture it that way. And he's not her husband, he's her guardian. But they're heading back to Boaz. And uh, you know, it's, it's worth noting, I suppose, when you consider Mary uh, and Joseph, and you read the genealogies of the two through Luke and Mark and wherever you see the genealogies of the two, you see they both wind up at at David, at Yeshua, right? They come, but it can't come through Joseph because there's this Jeconiah thing that we read about in Jeremiah 22 that, uh, you know, it's a whole nother study, but basically uh, Jeconiah was cursed by the Lord. And the curse was, you will never have a child. So that would have ended the line. So there would have been no way for the Messiah to come through the line of Joseph, because that line ended with Jeconiah. And you can read all about that in Jeremiah 22. So it came through Mary, which I think came through Nathan. So it's still legitimate. It would have got to David either way. But you, you, you see that coming. So you first thing you want to do is make Joseph an old man. And he's not some, you know, studly young man. And and, and they get to the house of Boaz. Well, it's the feast day. It's not only is it, you know, a feast, it's, a, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a huge feast. It's the big feast. And we're approaching, I believe, we are at the last day, the greatest day of the feast. And this is the day that all kinds of things go on. And all of these things are prophetic towards uh, the return of, of the Messiah. And I believe it was that day that he was born. But you, you, what you would see is if they're at the estate of Boaz, they're some 12 clicks away from Bethlehem where the, uh, the festivities are going on, right? Where the, uh, so they've got these huge menorahs that are burning. They would have seen this from where they were because they're at, at the, they're on the mountain and they're looking down towards Bethlehem and seeing all this stuff that's going on. And at that point, you know, that to me, Cecil B. DeMille could have done a wonderful thing with. You've got Joseph and Mary, great with child. We all know what's going to happen. We've heard the story before and they, they come and they're at the top of the hill just outside of Bethlehem at the, at the sheep ranch, really, of Boaz, and they're looking down at all the festivities that are going on. So uh, it says in Scripture there's no room at the inn, and that word inn is kataluma, and it actually means gr- guest house in Greek. So there was no room at the guest house, and we think, well, what's up with that? a lady 9 months pregnant about to pop shows up who's not going to give up their room so this lady can you know be comfortable as she has her baby and and that's how we look at it as our english christian american minds would look at it but that's absolutely not right because she's going to have a baby which means there's going to be blood and other things involved and that would render not only her unclean, but it would render everyone in the house unclean. And this is the big deal feast. This is the thing. So you can't render all these people unclean so they wouldn't or couldn't go to the feast. And in those days, feast or not, well, in those days and these days, um, you, you go to a birthing center. You know, most people don't have their babies even now at home. And in those days, it was no different. You sent the wife and the midwife and whoever else was wanting to be involved to a birthing center, in essence, to a place that was outside of the home so that the home would not be defiled for seven days. And that's where the baby would be born. So when when they say there was no room at the inn, there, there was no inn. This was the guest house of Boaz. This was on the estate of Boaz. And there's no question that every single person in there would have given up their spot for this woman had it been possible, but it wouldn't have been possible. And you wouldn't have even considered it with the Hebrew mindset and the Torah, and they all knew the rules and the law. So they would seek to put this woman in a place that was away from the house, but make it as comfortable as possible. So we we will later hear that, There were shepherds in the fields and the angels came and said, go to the manger. Something wonderful has happened. Okay, this is Bethlehem. There were 10,000 sheep ranches in Bethlehem. Each of them had a manger. I didn't get any directions when I read in English where to go. How would they know? Oh, follow the star. Well, that's not it either. How did they know where to go? And of course, it's because in English we don't get it, but in Greek there's a uh, it's a theta, it's th is basically what it is, and it's just the the word for the right capital the, and we've covered this before on some Hebrew stuff, but it's the same in Greek. Go to the Marbeg go to the manger. You know which one that is. The manger. Well, it could only be one because there was only one place in all of Bethlehem that produced all of the sheep for all of the sacrifices under the control of the priests. And that was this place on the estate of Boaz because, you know, and this ties into Ruth who ties into us and it's it's pretty amazing that it's Boaz and Ruth who are the basically in the Hebrew, the parents of David and the parents of Yeshua, you know, because there are no greats and great, greats and great in in Hebrew. So they, they are at this place some years after Boaz's passing and they go to what's called the Migdal Dare, the tower of the flock, the sheep tower, the place where the, and, and I'm sure that David himself stood at the top of that Migdal Dare because he was a shepherd boy and watched his sheep for some amount of time. And underneath this Migdal Dare was this marbake where the sheep were born. It was this, you know, hollowed out limestone thing with the straw in it, That's the sheep that were born for the temple. If you were going to be a sacrifice in the temple, if you were going to be a sacrifice for God, you had to be born there. So we know who Yeshua is. We know what his job is. There was no other place on earth that he could have been born and fulfilled all the scriptures. All of the sacrifices for the temple had to be born there and they had to be born in that marbake of that Migdal I dare and the fact that it happened on that day on the greatest day the last day of the greatest feast the feast that we celebrated through the thousand years that's miraculous yes, yes. think about how many miracles had to happen to get her right there at that spot on that day to have that baby. And think about who knew who that baby was. There were only four people that knew. Mary knew. The angel had told her. Joseph knew. The angel had told him. Zacharias, the priest, knew. And his wife, Elizabeth, knew. Well, Zacharias, the priest, was there. He was at the festivities. He was all hands on deck. He was serving. So Micah 4.8 says this. And thou, O tower of the flock, O migdal I dare, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion. And think about that. We read this stuff and, you know, we, we read it and we don't even have a context through which to think about it. But, And thou, O tower of the flock, okay, thou migdal I dare, which is, I mean, think about it, which is the stronghold of the daughter of Zion. Unto thee it shall come, even the first dominion, the the first coming, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. It is. In Micah, it was telling you that the Messiah was going to come And not just come willy-nilly, he was going to come into that marbake of that Migdal-I-Dare, and this was going to be his first dominion, his first coming. So when you think about all that had to go on from, this would have been... uh, well, it would have been nine months for Mary and then six months previous to that. So at the bare minimum, events are being, I shouldn't say controlled, but the—the the, these were the events that God laid out for 15 months plus whatever before that. And I would suggest this was laid out from before the beginning of time. So this has been planned for, more than 4,000 years, every single step of the way so that, and think about it, what difference does it make? So that even the smallest, tiniest, most overlooked prophecy in the scripture is fulfilled. Because who even thinks about the marbake of the Migdal I being the place where all the, the the sacrifices had to be born? Nobody even counts that in their books of prophecy of of Yeshua coming, that's, that's not a thing. But to the Lord, every single little bit, every word, every yacht, every tittle, everything has to be fulfilled to the nth degree. So he had to be born there. And none of this was a mistake. Um, which, again, they're both translated in English as manger. And of course, that it had to be on the the property of Boaz, who was married to Ruth, who were parents to Obed and Jesse and David and Yeshua. You know, none of this is any coincidence. All of this is dialed in from before the foundations of the earth. And why? So that we can see who he is, because he is is that guy. He's that good. He's There's no question. There's nobody that can say, oh, he's just, you know, just a guy, good teacher, nice guy. If they can do this and will do this for us, he didn't need to do this for him. He did this for us so that we can see these things. Okay. Luke 2, 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him at the end. Swaddling clothes, in Greek it's the word spargano, and it means literally to strip, you know, like strip fabrics. And the, the, the culture, the, the Torah, the law, the rules, are that the priests had to wear certain garments. And we've looked at the garments and the, you know, the breastplate and the headdress and all of the things, but they had to wear linen garments. And we, we know that, we recognize that, we know that to be true. But where do these linen garments come from? There was no Costco there. You know, they had to be made, right? And these linen garments were specially made because of course they were for the priest and then they had to be consecrated just like everything in the temple. It had to be given over to the use of God and the priests would use them, but they were consecrated unto God. And there was a specific use for all of the things in the temple and the linen priestly garments were no different. And they could only be used by the priest when he was in the performance of his priest. Fabric still had to be used in the service of the Lord. So what they would do is they would rip the linen garments into strips and they would twist them. Well, they had a bunch of uses, but one of them was, they would twist them into wicks. And so the wicks would go into the temple menorah, which would of course draw up the oil and that's what would light the temple. So even at their demise, the the linen garments were still used in, um, In the service of the Lord. And I would suggest because Zacharias was there and he already knew who this baby was, the the swaddling clothes on the baby Yeshua, I would bet dollars to donuts was an unused, already consecrated linen garment for him, for the priest, for the high priest that he ripped to wrap this tiny baby in. And it's just, there is, and why wouldn't you do this at the pageant? Okay. I don't know. Well, they do know it. It's in the book. It's, this isn't rocket science. So it's interesting that in the first, the first advent that Micah was talking about, he comes wrapped in Spargano. He comes wrapped in a consecrated, Linen garment given over to the service of the Lord, but when he comes back the second time, he doesn't have the Spargano anymore, he has the Stefano, so he has the crown of the victor. So this baby starts as uh, wrapped in these linen garments of the priest and comes back with the crown of the victor. Okay, Revelation. 14.4, 14.4, I think. I've got 14.14. 14. I think it's 14.4, but I could be wrong. Uh, These that are which are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These follow the Lamb wherever so he goes. These were the redeemed among men, being first fruits unto God, unto the Lamb. In today's culture, we're a lot more comfortable not talking about the conception of Yeshua and talking about his birth and the Roman Catholic church has uh, in some sense destroyed that for us. They've taken it out of the, the, the proper context of the feast and put it on the feast, the pagan feasts that have been pagan for, for as long as there have been pagans. And of course, you know the difference between a pagan and a heathen, right? yeah the the heathen was the one who got the 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 tree out and nailed it to the floor and covered it with okay heathen is well a pagan is somebody who worships a different god but a heathen is somebody who doesn't care doesn't have a god so you don't really want to be either but um, so when you look at the you know the facts of the matter then you start looking at the Anglican Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church have all changed the dates of the nativity of John the Baptist, the Annunciation, I guess. Um, It's called Lady Day in England. It was on a specific day. It was on Sivan 23rd. But in order to get Christmas on the 25th of December, they had to backtrack and make that happen on a different day. So you can go back in the historical records and a lot of these guys will talk openly about it or have written letters. I mean, they won't talk about it now. They've been dead for 2000 years, but they will, they, they have written letters explaining why they did it because they knew it was certainly questionable at the time, but they did it for what they considered to be good purposes to bring the pagans into the, and you know, it, you, you look at it and it's hard to say they weren't successful Because pagans today still associate Christmas with the Messiah of the Christian or Jewish religion. They never associate it with their own pagan culture. But nonetheless, um, whether you think they were just misguided or doing this for nefarious reasons, that's, that's how it went down. Uh, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles is called the Hosanna Rabbah, which loosely translated means the Great One Saves. And it's, you know, we read over this stuff and don't typically associate any particular significance to it. But as you're reading through the the Gospels, especially, and other documents, you, you, can, you can begin to put together some of the things that are happening. And one of the things that's happening is a group of priests will go out the western gate and go down to the River Kidron. And they will, there are willow trees that grow, you know, willows grow, you know, like that. And they would cut branches that were 20, 25, 30 feet long off of these willow trees. And then each priest would have a branch that's just towering over them. And they would wave it in the air as they were walking back to the temple. Another group of priests goes out the Eastern gate to the pool of Shiloh. And, and they have a special vessel that they uh, gather some water. And they, they do the water festival every night of the, the seven-day feast. But on the last day, it's a big deal. So on the last day, and what they would do every night is they would get the water and they would bring it up to the temple and they'd pour it on the altar. And of course it would run down and it was just a, a picture of you know, pouring out your life and all of the things that the water is. But on the last day, the greatest day, the Hosanna Rabbah Day, you've got one group of priests going out one side, another group of priests going out the other side. And then of course there's people following both. And in the center was a priest playing the flute and they call him the pierced one. And nobody knows why they call him the pierced one, they just do. And of course we know why they call him the pierced one, but the Jews have no idea. That's just custom and tradition, I guess. And so he would play the flute and he would beckon these these priests from the one side with the big willows, you know, waving them back and forth and they're making this whooshing sound, this wind, this ruach, the spirit is what that is. And you'd see, the the priest from the other side bringing this water up and they're trailed by you know dozens perhaps hundreds of people and they would get to the middle where the pierced one is playing so you've got an obvious picture of the the spirit with the the wind and the whoosh, you know the ruach and you've got the living water coming up from the other side and in the midst of this is the is the the pierced one playing a flute and beckoning everybody together so as they're um, they're coming up from the Uh, from the pool of shilom with the water and they make this big deal of pouring it out over the altar while the you know the uh, the willow branches are moving back and forth making this swishing sound so just picture all this that's going on i mean it's you know it's the deal and they call this the greatest day of the greatest feast and in, in, in in all kinds of literature both hebraic and and others this is the thing and they say for a hebrew to know what true joy is he can't ever know what true joy is until he sees this. It's that big a deal. When he sees it or when he, well, both. I mean, you know, in Hebrew, it's the same word, right? Obey and understand is all the same thing. But as it's, it's all this is going on, Yeshua is standing there, and this is recorded in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. And he says, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Yeshua stood and cried, saying, "If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And he that believeth on me, as the Scripture had said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water." And this was on his birthday, at the oh no, at the greatest, um, at the greatest day of the greatest feast. And if you can just you know, Cecil B. DeMille needed to do this. This is, this would have been awesome. So there were these 75-foot-tall menorahs, and they would, uh, each bowl had seven seven gallons of oil in it, 75 feet tall. So, of course, they'd send the young bucks up to fill, the, um, to fill it up. And it was said that these things put off so much light that they could be seen from the, uh, they could be seen by ships at sea 60 miles away. So certainly Mary and Joseph and Uh, the shepherds and all that's going on up there, they could see them. They could see this whole thing that's happening. So it's on the same day that Jesus in John 8, 12 says, and then spake Yeshua unto them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And did I mention it was on his birthday that all this was happening? And I I mean, this is the true Christmas story. This is what happened. And all those pieces, or a lot of those pieces, you see at at the Christmas pageant at church. But it's never presented in this way. It's presented in the way that Julius presented it when he was trying to convince the pagans that they should become Catholics. You know, he homogenized all these just pagan ideas and weird and a couple of, you know, Christian things and mixed them all together to try to draw people onto the Catholic church. And again, he's, you know, there's no arguing with his success, but you look at the world today and the success came at what cost. Nobody knows what this is about anymore. You know, we hear the, um, and all the kids were asked, what's the meaning, the reason for the season? Oh, it's Jesus' birthday. He was born on this day to save me from my sins. and Because that's what they're being taught. And it's true. He was saved to, I mean, born to, I guess you can say, save us from our sins. But the whole story is so mixed up and homogenized with the world that it's I don't know, it's, it's difficult and I look at the world today and you see all these people that say they're Christians and then they're not living that way. They're not living as though they know the truth. And I guess maybe it's because they don't know the truth. And I don't know, I, I, I'm hoping that will change. Is that like a book that you've written? No, not yet. A history? I could. I certainly have thousands of pages of it, but it it's just such a picture of where we are, and that leads us into a commercial for next year, and next year we'll start looking at um, a lot of these things the answers to a lot of these questions: why do we see the way we see what's going to happen why? And it's not necessarily a bad thing that so many don't get it because we're at the end of Hosea's second day, but the third day hasn't started yet. And when that third day begins, there are gonna be wholesale changes to the way people think about uh, certainly Yeshua and uh, Yahweh. and I mean, I think things are gonna be upended for the good. And the, the, the Jews, the Hebrews, well, you, you see in Ezekiel, you've got the two sticks, right? The house of Judah and the house of Israel. And those sticks are brought, and it's, they're not sticks, they're trees, it's eights. It's the I, I know. Well, but it's not. It says eights in Hebrew. It says tree. So you've got these two trees of the house of Judah and the house of Israel, and they're going to be brought together. And that's how we know that we're at the third day. So for that to happen, there has to be, there will be wholesale changes to the way people see uh, church and God, and they will, I I believe, with every fiber of my being, there's a time coming when there's going to be a huge return to the things of Scripture, when we're going to, or at least those people who want to, are going to draw into and dive into the things that the Lord actually said that we'll need to know his instructions and his statutes, you know, and, and I did, I, I told you the one about the financial guy, right? How come the Jews are so much more successful than the Christians? And he picks up the Bible. Well, the Christians read the back of the book. and All the financial principles are in the front of the book, right? Well, it's the same with, with faith. You know, we read the back of the book, but all of the instructions for faith are in the front of the book. So this time, I believe uh, we're going to spend a lot of time in Hosea for the next—I don't know, maybe till the Lord returns. <laughs> um, Hosea and you know all these other places, but it's good. It's really good. <laughs>